this time we'll dismiss our little ones to Children's Church. Uh, if you would like to take advantage of that, uh, you can go to the back of, those, of the room here and ages four to third grade, please feel free to go there if you'd like. Parents, you're welcome to walk them to the room. It's just down the hall here if you'd like to, if that would make your children more comfortable. And of course, if you want to leave your kids in here, please do that too. We know as we get back into worship and as our little people learn more about worship, um, it's good for them to be challenged and encouraged, not only to be in here, but to know more about what's going on. And so we're trying to offer this for those of you as parents that need help and further assistance in teaching your children how to worship. And then remember, they'll come back as we transition to the table. So just remember that as well. It's going to be noisy and it's going to be great because they're children and we love them and they are part of our body. So anyway, all right. Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures, let's look together at the book of Romans. I know you might be expecting to go through a resurrection text this morning and in years past we've done that. But this morning, we're just going to keep trucking through the book of Romans. We're in chapter 3. Uh, we're going to look at the last part of this chapter, verses 21 through 31. And I just want you to remember, look, we, by definition, are a resurrection people. The reason why we worship on Sunday is because our Christ rose from the dead. We celebrate Easter 52 times a year. I just want you to remember that. So even though we're not looking at a resurrection text today, it doesn't mean that we don't like the resurrection, okay? It's actually the anchor of everything that we do and think and believe, and we talk about it every week. So perhaps next year we'll look at a resurrection text, I don't know, but for today, we're just going to keep talking about Jesus and his death and resurrection from Romans 3. So if you haven't been here, just remember, Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome, roughly the year 57, the year 58. He writes the letter, this letter, the book of Romans, to this church in Rome. It was a church that he didn't plant, but it was a church that he really loved. It is a book that is um, mm, challenging. Remember, I want to remind you of that. And it's going to push us to face all of our fears our fears about not being enough, our fears about suffering is necessary, our fears about how powerful and uncomfortable the grace of God is, it's going to push us in all kinds of directions. Um, this morning, you might feel a little bit of that push as well, because this text is pretty amazing, and I won't do it justice at all. I'll just tell you that right now. Listen to this from Romans 3, starting in verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we ask that as we have heard your words here, that we might now understand them. Lord, if we come here today and we are dry, spiritually dry, would you please pour the living water under our souls through this text? If we come here today and we are full of joy and excitement, would you cause that joy to be rooted more deeply in our Savior and in your grace and in the power of the Holy Spirit? If we come here and we're confused, we don't know what to think, Lord, would you please take this text and untangle whatever is all messed up inside so that you might be understood for who you really are, so that we might understand who we really are, and that this week our lives would say, yes, we have heard you, we love you, and we're following you. All of this, all of this, Lord, and whatever else you desire to do, have your way with us for your glory. Amen. First day of kindergarten, my mom takes me to the bus stop. She uh, takes me to the bus stop, and as I go to get on the bus, my mom speaks to the bus driver and says, would you please drop Dave off at a different spot after school? My mom said that because at the time, if I remember correctly, she had a broken ankle and was in, uh, had a cast and was on crutches, and my three-year-old brother was also with her. So she asked the bus driver to please drop me at a different location so that it was easier for her to get from the townhouse to the bus stop to pick me up. The bus driver did not drop me off at the spot that my mom requested. First day of school. So I got off the bus, and I couldn't find my mom. For two hours, I was walking around, and I couldn't find my mom. I didn't know where I was supposed to go. I didn't know what I was going to do. Have you ever felt lost? I mean lost. And on the other side of that, do you know what it's like to be found? I'm not saying you find something that you're looking for. I'm saying you as a person, do you know what it is like to be found? Where someone welcomes you, embraces you, where someone provides for you, do you know what it is like to be found? If you do, in retrospect, how often have you thought about being found and realized, what a gift. It is a gift to be found, isn't it? 
It's always a gift. When you experience being found that someone cares and provides and does and welcomes you, it is always a gift. Well, this morning we're going to talk about being found. And we're going to do that through thinking about this text in these two ways, the gift and the giver. So let's rummage through these verses. Again, I won't do this justice today at all, but I want to take the concepts that are here in these verses and show you the gift and show you the giver in hopes that we might all experience again and again and again being found. Follow me? Get me? Get where we're going? So let's start with the gift. You know, one of the facets about thinking about this idea of the gift that I need to tell you on the front end is that it's, this gift is multifaceted and multidimensional because the gift that God has given us is a person, and his name is Jesus. And these verses are all about Jesus as the gift just described with different concepts. So just know that as we think about this, we're thinking about Jesus and all that he is. Now, the first idea of the gift and Jesus being the gift is this idea of redemption. Do you notice that at the end of verse 24? Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In the, in the ancient world, there weren't bankrupt laws. You didn't have chapter 11 bankruptcy stuff. In the ancient world, when you owed someone something and you couldn't pay them back, you had to give yourself to them. And you had to work off whatever it was that you owed, which meant it could last your entire life, potentially. It means that when this is describing Jesus as our redemption, it is reminding us that we have a debt that we could never, ever pay. And Jesus was willing to pay that debt and redeem us out of debt by paying all that we owe, by paying every single cent, every aspect of what we owe to God. So this gift that we have, it is complete. It is complete. Now the rest of these verses are talking about the other aspect of this gift is that this redemption that we have in Jesus, another way to think about it from a different facet, a different dimension, a different way to think about that is this, the idea of a resume. Now when you go back through and read these verses, you'll see the words righteousness and justify over five times in these verses. Believe it or not, it's the same word. And God is using the idea of righteousness and justify to communicate what we might think of as a resume. Now, resumes are important, right? I hope you say yes to that because they are. They're important for all of us. They're important for you, even whether you are in high school or whether you are retired. A resume is really important. People use it all the time. We use them all the time. It's everywhere. If you're in high school, you are, 
probably have a sense that you're building your resume because you're maybe trying to figure out where you want to go to school. And how you, what you put on that resume would indicate where you might go to school or where you might not be able to go to school. And, and once you go to school, you have to add some more things probably to your resume in order to get into particular majors. And, and once you get into the workforce, oftentimes you have to continue to build your resume either by a master's degree or a PhD or even some type of specialties certificates, certifications, all because you have to continue to build your resume. What's going on with your resume is it's a performance record of sorts. It says things that you have done and things that you have accomplished that therefore are recognized by someone else that says you are authorized, you have been trained, and therefore you are worthy to do this or to have that, right? Resumes are important. Matter of fact, the older that you get, you might think differently about your resume. It actually can get to the point where you start thinking that your reputation is built on top of your resume, or your resume is actually what gives you your reputation. So that you might look at your resume and your accomplishments and your performance, and you might say to yourself, this is where I have value. This is what says I'm worth something. Sound familiar? I mean, if you're in high school, you already feel a little bit of pressure trying to build that resume, don't you? Because you're thinking about this and thinking about that, and, and you feel this pressure to get all these hours of service in here and there because you want this over here. In order to get that, you have to do all these things. I'm sure, I'm sure that you have at least felt the tug of the temptation to think to yourself, you know what? My resume is what tells me that I'm important. It's what communicates my worth, it communicates my value so that we'll take it from this angle. Think about your life. What is it that you boast in? You know those times when you get pushed a little bit by somebody? Those moments in which you can tell that someone's coming at you a little bit? What is it that you go to in those moments? What is it that you start to boast in? What is it that you begin to say back when you get attacked? Because that is your righteousness. That is what is informing and fills up your resume. Now, remember, Resumes are everywhere, they're kind of important, but it's really something we gotta think about. Because what God is telling us in these verses is that there is a divine resume. There is a divine resume. Look at verse 21, he says, I have a righteousness that is apart from the law. Meaning that you and I cannot earn this kind of resume. We can't follow the law scrupulously and therefore have the proper credentials before God. God says this righteousness is divine. It is apart from the law. It's also a righteousness in verse 21 that actually was foretold by the prophets, by the Old Testament. That God tells us that a righteousness is coming. Jesus is even given the name of our righteousness, even in the Old Testament. 
God says there is a divine resume. It's one that you can't earn. It's one that must be given. It's one that is found. The resume is found in this person of Jesus. God even says around verse 25 that he had delayed payment for everyone's sins until this righteousness came. The sacrifices in the Old Testament, oh, they were pointing to it. The prophets, yes, they were telling about it. But Jesus, when he came, he was the divine resume, perfect righteousness. God also says that it's something that he has to give to us. It's something that he gives. You see, this gift, this perfect righteousness, this divine resume is what God gives to us. Notice how many times in the text the idea of faith comes in. Some eight plus times, around eight times, that God gives it to us and we receive it. He, in verse 24 and verse 26, justifies us. He makes us righteous. Now, when you think about what it means for God to justify us, just hang in there with me for a moment. When you think of forgiveness, you ought to think about, when God forgives you, you ought to think about this. When God forgives me, he takes this burden off of me. He lifts off this burden. And in taking off the burden, he says to us, you're free to go. You're free to go. But when God justifies us, he declares that we have been given the divine resume. And he doesn't just say you're free to go. He says, come on in. I welcome you. You belong with me. Now, it may be true that you have heard this over and over and over, and this is just old hat to you. This may be something that you've thought about over and over. I don't know. The reason why this is so powerful is because it's not how most of us have been taught the gospel. Most of us have been taught that this is how you become a Christian. Most of us have been taught this is how you enter into a relationship with God. You hear that God has things that he wants you to do, and you decide that you are going to be committed, and you are committed to doing things differently in your life. And then once that commitment is made, God then does the rest. Do you hear the subtlety of that? Do you hear the, su the subtlety of that is this, that once we commit, then God will do everything. And friends, that is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that God does everything. 
Just a few verses later in chapter 4, this is what God says. He justifies the ungodly. That means that none of us start to clean ourselves up and then God will do something. It means that God justifies the ungodly. It means that he declares righteous and forgiven and, his, and declares us as his own children while we are absolutely guilty and rebellious and running against his law. It means that God justifies and declares perfect those of us who are sinners. It means that when we come to Christ and when we believe in Jesus, it means that all we have is need. It means that we have to have need. That's it. There's nothing else. It's not that we've committed. It's not that we're planning on changing. It's not that we're committed to clean up our lives. It's that we have nothing that makes us in any way, shape, or form acceptable to God. All we have is need. All we have is nothing. Friends, that is the gift. Jesus is the gift that he is everything. That means we need to think about the giver in even more detail. When you read back through these verses, you read that God freely gives us Jesus. Did you notice that over and over? God put Jesus forward. Look at verse 25. Hold on. It's not fun to be talking and seeing some bug crawl on you, you know? You remember that time when this wasp flew in and was flying over? Remember that? Yeah, a lot of you saw that before I did. I just heard it, but you all saw it. God put Jesus forth in verse 25 as a mercy seat, as a propitiation. God put Jesus forth as the one who would endure everything for us. Do you ever struggle in thinking about this? Does it bother you that God is upset about our sin? I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we could say, you know what, I'm not sure I want God to be upset about my sin. I would rather him just be loving, right? This passage is telling us that you can't separate the justice of God from his love. You have to have both and you really need both. And at the end of the day, I think you might actually want both. Just think in your own life. Think about times in which you have been wronged. Think about times in which you have been wronged. And when you have been wronged, you have a choice. When you've been wronged, you can punish the people who have hurt you, can't you? Maybe you've done that. Maybe you've done that by being silent toward people. And it's just your way of punishing them for something that they did against you. 
Someone always has to pay. And when someone wrongs you, perhaps you turn and punish them in your own way, whatever that is. Or you can decide that you will absorb the cost and the pain of being wronged. You ever made that decision? You ever had to make that decision? When you just grew tired of punishing people? When you grew tired of of inflicting punishment on other people because of this person over here? And you got so tired of it, you finally decide, I gotta come to grips with this and maybe I just need to forgive, meaning I will absorb the consequences of what they have done. I will face the pain of this person who wronged me. Maybe you've been there. God is both just and loving. He is both just and the justifier of those who believe. Meaning God, beloved, God has been perfectly just with you. Perfectly just and loving. You want God to be just and you need him to be loving. And maybe you can think about it this way. What do you think it costs to love you? In your relationships, doesn't have to be your spouse, can be a friend, certainly can be your spouse, it certainly is relevant. What do you think it costs them to love you? What, what sacrifice, what sacrifices do they have to make in order to love you? You see, we need both. We need God to be loving, and we need him to be just. And God was willing to take the justice on himself. He was willing not to punish you and me for what we've done and how we've wronged him. He was willing to look out and be upset at how sin is destroying us. And he said, I'll take it. I'll take what they deserve. I will take the justice on myself and I will love them so that in doing everything that you and I need, he is perfectly just and perfectly loving. And all of that is received by faith. Remember, faith is entrusting yourself to someone else. That means faith is like looking to someone else outside of yourself. Faith, faith is tasting living water. Faith, faith is looking away from self and to someone else. And God says that all of this is by grace. Verse 24, it is the free gift of God. And beloved, free means free. Free means free. And this idea of free grace, free, is enhanced by the first two words of verse 21. But now. That's the real momentum of this whole text. Remember, chapter 118 through chapter 3, verse 20 gives us a a very clear picture of who we are. Do you remember this? 
We all know that there's God. We all are without excuse. We all find it easy to see the shortcomings and faults in others and are blind to our own. We all do not live up to our own standards. We all are guilty before God. There's none of us who is righteous. There's none of us who seek after God. The whole point of the first half of chapter three was to render us silent before God. Remember that our mouths might be stopped and all the world would be accountable to God. We have nothing but now, verse 21, but now. And that's not as if we're at a UFC fight and the announcer comes on and says, but now it's the main event. It's not that. It's not that kind of but now. This is like, this is like um, the movie Taken. Have you all ever seen this movie? It's, it's, a, it's a movie about a, a, a dad who is on the phone when his daughter gets kidnapped and she's taken to Paris. And if you like vigilante justice, you'll like this movie. <laughs> and he has to go all over the world to find his daughter and then he gets her. And you know what he says to her? I told you I would come for you. That's what this but now is saying. God has been promising to provide everything that we need since Genesis chapter three. And he's saying, but now, here it is. The whole world is guilty before me, but now, here is Jesus. Here is a divine resume that is apart from the law. Here is everything that you need. It only requires that you know that you have need. It is all by grace, it is all free, and faith itself is even a gift. And I've done it all. You know, that first day of kindergarten for me didn't, didn't go so well, you know? I still remember it pretty vividly even to this day. I was lost. But then I was found. And I didn't even realize how much danger I was in. At five years old, walking around, Anyone could have scooped me up. I was a pretty jovial, friendly kid. I would have gone with anyone. There was more danger in that moment than I could even imagine, but I was scared, I was fearful, and I couldn't find my mom. I couldn't get in my house, but I was found. But I found my mom. She found me. And there was that welcome embrace, that provision, that love that I needed Friends, that is exactly what happens with Jesus. My story is a fleeing shadow of what it's like for Jesus to come to us and find us and welcome us and remind us that we belong. In other words, whether you've never come to Christ, today may be the day, and all you need is need. And if you want to grow in your walk with Christ, all you need is need. You got to put on Christ. You got to step into Christ. 
You gotta live out what Jesus has done for you. That means if you're thinking about, well, what am I supposed to do with this text? Instead of thinking about what you're supposed to do, I want you to think about what kind of person are you becoming? What kind of person are you becoming? Think back through this passage. What do you boast in? Really? What do you boast in? Do you ever fight your resume, what you have accomplished, what you have done, that that, that is where you get your worth? What, do you ever fight against your resume? Do you ever think about your jobs? Do you ever think about your callings and, and wrestle with how much your job that you spend hours and hours and hours every week goes against the gospel? Do you ever think about how hard it is to live by free grace whenever everything around us is saying, do more, work harder, be better? What kind of person are you becoming? Are you fighting against your resume? You know you need it, but you're not putting your worth there? What about this? Do you have a growing discernment? No matter what you read or listen to, no matter how you study the scripture or who your favorite teachers are, do you have a growing discernment for people that use the Bible as just a textbook to give advice rather than an announcement of good news? Are you growing in your discernment that when you study the scriptures, it is about Jesus. It's not a book of advice where people just lay out principles for you to put into your life and get the algorithm right so you can get the outcome you want. Are you growing in your discernment? Am I? Do you notice? Do you notice if you punish people? Someone wrongs you? Is your reflex to punish other people? Someone's wronged you, have you worked it out? Have you taken Jesus into that place of hurt? Into that place where you've been wronged? Or is it just instinctive to punish other people? Make other people pay for what they have done to me? Do you notice that about yourself? Are you growing in your ability? Are you becoming the type of person? Are we becoming the type of people? Are we becoming the type of church that is willing to absorb? That's not easy. It's hard. When was the last time you did something freely for someone else? When was the last time you just did something because you just wanted to love on that person? 
Our culture is becoming increasingly transactional, isn't it? Being willing to absorb anything? Mm, not me. I don't want to do that. If the gospel is at work in our lives, we will become a people that are willing to absorb. We will become a people who are willingly doing things for free. Freely serving. Maybe we'll end here. Are we becoming, am I becoming a more gracious person? Are you? The more life experience you have, the more struggles you have, the more joys you have, the more celebrations you have, are, are, are we becoming more gracious? Beloved, if the gospel is true and God has done all these things in Jesus, then we should be becoming like him. We should be more gracious. And that's what brings us to the table.